1: Savannah is a city that celebrates its history, but there are some events that aren't mentioned on the trolley or carriage tours around town. Savannah was the site of the largest slave sale in American history, staged over a two-day period in March of 1859 at a horse racing course that sat in what is today West Savannah. The sale of 400-plus men, women, and children from two coastal Georgia plantations is known as the Weeping Time and one man has devoted countless hours to bringing awareness to the atrocity and is now leading an effort to create a memorial to the enslaved people at the site. Kwesi DeCraft Hansen of the Organization to Commemorate Enslaved African American Nationals is our latest difference maker. The podcast is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. the digital team at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremmer, and joining me for this episode is De DeGraft Hansen, who three decades ago came to coastal Georgia to study structures built from tabby, the colonial-era mortar made from lime, sand, and broken oyster shells, only to stumble upon the remains of an old rice plantation and later learn that plantation's dark history which included the sale of more than 400 enslaved workers right here in Savannah. Graft Hansen covers all of that and more in today's Difference Makers interview. Joined on today's Difference Makers by Questy Graft Hansen, who has started back in 2017 a group called OCEANS, which is an acronym for Organization to Commemorate Enslaved African American Nationals. And if you are a regular reader of the Savannah Morning News, you know about this time of the year that you'll probably see a, a column or something from Quessy talking about the weeping time. Uh, as, this, as this recording posts, it is February the 26th. Next week, March 2nd and 3rd, are the anniversary, 164 years, if my math is right, from 1857 of the weeping time, which is uh, the largest sale of enslaved people in American history, that quite frankly, the the, the darkest day in Savannah's history, which uh, Savannah is a, is a city that that really um, embraces its history and knows its history and, and studies its history, and this is one of those days that, that we wish that had never happened, uh, to, to be quite frank about it, and uh, Klesi and I are going to get into the weeping time and get into a lot of other things around the weeping time, but as we usually do on this podcast, we're going to start with a bio of the guest, and Kwesi is uh, now he lives in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, but he didn't grow up there. And his his desire, his uh, passion for for the history of, of the enslaved people did not start in Atlanta, It did not start in this. country. It started in Africa, in Ghana. Kwesi, can you go ahead and walk us through kind of
0: uh, your childhood and growing up and, and what kind of environment you grew up in? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. So yes, I did grow up in Ghana, West Africa, and um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And um, my parents were educators. Um, My father taught college. My mother was a high school teacher, and I was privileged to grow up on a university campus. And one of the things that I, I, I cherished about that was every year, typically in the summer, the university was flooded with um, tourists, um, mostly students, faculty from the United States um, and from other parts of the world. There was a steady trek every year of African-Americans, especially to, to Ghana. and That's because Ghana is known as... Um, a place where there are existing slave forts and castles on the coast. So there's a very strong connection. Also, as you know, um, Ghana, then the Gold Coast um, was one of the places that was plundered for enslaved people brought to Savannah, Charleston, and all over, all over the, um, the, the Atlantic. Um, I was quite oblivious, honestly, to the history of slavery growing up, because it's, it's not one of the things that's brought up, sadly so. But anyway, I remember an event when I was maybe about eight or nine years old. Um, my mother invited an African-American woman to our home for a meal, and sometimes they wore her dresses and, you know, just sort of a cultural exchange. And this woman was called Dr. Deborah Wolf. And she, if my memory serves me right, she was a professor at um, SUNY um, in New York. And I remember that she gave my mother a book of Negro spirituals and she sang a song. And I don't think uh, I've ever gotten over that.
1: You, you mentioned the fact that the slave trade coming out of Ghana was not something you were familiar with. Is it not something that is taught in, in history classes in the schools over there? And if not, why not?
0: Correct. Well. I think the reason is this: um, when I was when I was growing up, most of the books that we got were published in the United Kingdom, basically in, in Britain. Now, Britain was one of the largest slave traders, right. so you can see how again the history of slavery is something that most people want to forget. You know, so I think the publishers will will minimize it, and even Ghana, because Africans, as we know were also tied in with the slave trade, Um, sadly so. And so I think, I don't know the real reason, but for whatever reason, it was not emphasized in those books. And so um, anyway, so so back to the story. So I remember that after the Negro spiritual song, I remember thinking, wow. And I think it sows a seed. You don't really know what you're gonna do with it, if anything. Um, I also remember she gave each one of us kids a quarter, and I remember looking at it and seeing George Washington and just thinking, wow, you know, this is a treasure. But again, fast forward, um, I was about 14 years old in high school, and um, as I mentioned, Ghana has got a lot of slave forts and castles on its coast. Actually, every 15 miles along its 400 coast, there's a fort. That's because during the the days of the slave trade, um, Ghana was was heavily plundered Mm -hmm. and it had a good coastline, rocky coastline so that you could actually build. So something that's good ended up being um, a a, a problem or a big challenge. My hometown is called Cape Coast and the largest slave fort happens to be on Cape Coast. And um, actually, I grew up in Accra, which is 100 miles from Cape Coast, but we used to vacation in Cape Coast. My grandmother's house was probably, as the crow flies, a quarter of a mile, if that, from, from Cape Coast Castle. So at 14 years, some friends and I visit Cape Coast Castle. I have no clue what to expect. And Adam, I can tell you that when we walked in there, At 14, I'm thinking castles are associated with kings and queens and knights in shining armor and that sort of thing, because that's the books we've been reading. Imagine my surprise and distress when the uh, tour guide takes us into a male slave dungeon. And I can tell you, and some of your audience have been to Ghana, have been to these castles You can smell the people who were there 400 years ago because, unfortunately, they had to do all their bodily functions right there in that space, to put it mildly. And you had thousands of people trapped in the same space. The buildings were much like the buildings that you have on on Savannah's waterfront. They're not built of brick. They're built of stone and mortar. And what happens is those things have porous spaces in them So the smells and moisture soaks up into it. So you can smell everything to this day. And so it hit me, as they say, like a ton of bricks. I remember standing there and thinking, how could this have happened? How could this have happened? Um, And so, again, I walked away from there. um, But again, as a 14-year-old, you know, there's only so much that you can do. There are other things that take up, you know, school and, and, and growing up and so I think I just put it at the back of my mind. But I think also in retrospect that these things have a way of threading themselves in your life. So fast forward some years later, I happened to um, come to the University of Georgia for graduate school. Very fortunate. I, I, I got trained there as a landscape architect. So my eyes were open to land and landscapes and the beauty of land. But land also has very sad history, typically written into it. Of course, I had no idea. Um, I met, and married a beautiful woman from Savannah. My wife, we're both college um, um, mates at UGA. And so I started making the, the trek, if you will, to Savannah. I discovered this beautiful city it reminded me of of Ghana in many ways because of the palm trees and just the character. But again, I did not know that the cities were connected. You see? And that's part of the beauty of all this, the interconnectedness of all this. So while I'm walking in Savannah, walking on those beautiful cobblestones and the beautiful brick um, stones, unbeknownst to me, I'm walking in my ancestors' footsteps. Uh, And soaking it up at the same time, because again, as I I, I allude to, the people who placed those stones on the riverfront, the people who paved the brick, who built some of those buildings, enslaved hands, they transferred energy into those buildings. And as we walk and traverse those same spaces, we are are imbibing, we're soaking it up. And um, and I think these things then connect with other things in, in your in your life and in your background. So
1: I, I want to back you up for a minute. So, yes, sir, a 14 year old boy, you visited these castles. Your parents are are university professors.
0: Correct. Come My fathers.
1: Yeah. When you come home, when you start to ask questions about what you've seen and what you've experienced, what was what was their what
0: was their reaction? Very good. Very good. Very good. Actually, I don't recall asking that question immediately because I actually grew up in a boarding school and the boarding school was in Cape Coast. My parents lived in Accra. But, but, but so it would have taken maybe a couple of months before I had a chance to talk with them. Um, here is a general sort of answer that we would get. And I don't remember engaging my parents directly on it, but at some point, In a a Ghanaian household, in an African household, they talk about slavery. Um, But again, it is not not central to any conversations. If I ask my parents, they may have said something like, well, uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, My mother was very forthcoming. And, and, And here's the thing that I found out actually later on, that definitely some of my own ancestors were sold. My mother, my mother is actually a descendant of people who were sold to Jamaica. One of my ancestors actually returned from Jamaica, married an African-American, sorry, married an African woman, and um, we're descended from, from 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 him. So our ancestor was called a Mr. John Walker, who came to the Gold Coast. My guess is around 1870. So there was some discussion about, about slavery, and even the fact that the coast, where I'm from, as we said, my family's from Cape Coast, the people of Cape Coast and the coast were middlemen and women in the, in the slave trade.
1: Yeah, that, I'm very interested to see, to, to know how they, and you're hitting on it, is, is how they talk about slavery in Africa as
0: we- Correct, great, thank you, thank you, thank you. For putting
1: perspective. Back. Yeah, thank our perspective me... here in the United States is probably a little bit
0: different. Yes, thank you for putting me back on track. So yes, where I was going was the the the, the role of Africans, um, including people from the coast of, of, of Ghana. What I do know, both from hearing my parents and, and, and grandparents talk about it and now from history books is that there was certainly involvement but the involvement was coerced.
1: When you moved to the U.S. to go to college. Yes. And you got here and you started to hear the, the narrative around slavery. How different was it? How complimentary was it? Were you, how, how much did you soak up and learn in terms of, of the narrative on this side of the ocean?
0: All right, very good. I'll tell you that I, I can say that 95% of everything I know about slavery I've learned on this side. Because, again, growing up in Ghana, it was hardly mentioned. It was was not central at all. And so even when I came to America, I was very naive. I really didn't know much. Uh, It wasn't like when I landed in Georgia, I knew that there had been slavery in Georgia. Actually, I didn't even know that. Okay. I did not. You know, so a lot of these things were revealed to me um, little by little. You know, I remember my first visit to Savannah um, was for a school project from University of Georgia, actually. I had not met my wife then. I remember we stayed at um, a hotel on, on River Street. And we went down to river, the river, river Street, and I thought, this is beautiful. We listened to jazz music, had, had, had a meal. But there was something about that place. I remember um, looking at the gas lights and thinking, this place is just... It's beautiful, but it was hauntingly beautiful. There's something about it I couldn't put my finger on. And so over time, and actually, I think it was after I moved to Charleston, started working in the city of Charleston, that I began to hear a lot about slavery. Because as you know, Charleston was also a very heavy, um, heavily, heavily um, enslaved place, if I can yeah. put it that way. It's a, it's it's a, a port. port. Yeah, a port. It's, where a, it's a port. The ships were coming in. Yeah. Correct. And so living in Charleston, I began to experience, it. and actually I, I should say this also, the remnants of slavery in Charleston are still, I hate to say it, still very palpable.
1: Yeah, well, all the plantations right outside of town. Right,
0: correct. And, and, and I felt it, I felt it not just on the ground, but I felt it as a person, an African or a Black person in Charleston. I realized that there was a certain place that I could be and could not be. And I was not used to that. I was not used to that at all. My very first job in Charleston. And of course I won't name names, but someone says, you know, we don't need you here. Hmm. I'd just been hired landscape architect. He says, who are you? What are you doing here? And I thought, I'm surprised that they wouldn't know that I'm the new landscape architect on board. Says, we don't need you. And it was it was a chilling, I, I didn't understand it, but later on the lines were drawn. I came to realize that it was no place for me thinking that I was an educated landscape architect professional. My place, which I found out later <laughs> in Charleston was, um, if you're a black man, grab a shovel, okay? That's what you're gonna do. You're gonna do the labor work around here. Um, and so again, the 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 slavery is still, though it's not slavery, they're still shackles, right? Savannah unfortunately has some of the same things, and it's not, I don't know if it's deliberate. I don't think it's deliberate, I think these things grow on all of us over time, you see. So um, in Charleston, the reason why um, I was told there was no place for me, part of it was because I found out later that the person who was my supervisor had a degree that was less than what I had. okay. And it didn't work in Charleston. Right. It's not supposed to work that way. And, and, and you know, Savannah is the same. You know, it these things take time because when you have had a, a place, a culture that has had a stratification, a hierarchy, if you were, which means I'm white and I'm 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 above you, then it's still difficult. It's still difficult. And of course we have to we all have to work, we all have to work collectively to change that because we all lose that way.
1: You are listening to the Difference Makers podcast at a discussion with Kwesi DeGraft Hansen. Before we continue, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting ceda.org. That's S-E-D-A dot org. Now, back to the interview with Cleese de Hansen. Talk about the commemorations. Uh, I know that it, just a couple of handful of, year, handful of years ago, you started – um, organizing and, and collaborating on having the, the ceremonies over there at Brock, and, uh, how how moving. Uh, we're not going to have one this year, I don't believe, because of of COVID. But what can you describe from your perspective, what the what the first one are like, and what the ones since have been like in terms of of.
0: Yes, yes. Thank action. you very much. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, let me say this: we will have a commemoration this year, but it will not be in place. Right. It will be online, we're, 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 right. we're wrapping up that, and it will be on March the 6th. Okay. Um, so I will share information about that a little later, but you're right, the very first commemoration that we started was in 2017. When you have a marker, it doesn't just say, all right, we've done that, so now we move on. The marker itself, though it's a place marker, it's supposed to help with the commemorations. So it was at that point that I thought we've got to try something, just an annual gathering, you know, just something, you know, because we've got to remember these people. And I always say this, we're not remembering those people really because of them. We're remembering them because of us, right? Because of what it does in us, they're dead and gone. We have no clue whether they see or hear anything, but it's what we do and how it impacts us. When we gather and we see that we're black and white and people from New York and Philly. I mean, that's what happens in us. And that's what's important. So since 2017, we've been doing this annual commemoration. As you said, it's about gathering. Usually we gather at the, at the Historical Society marker. And we also gather at the school. Right. Now Brock Elementary School. Back then it was, I remember at some point it was Bartow Elementary School. Bartow, right and they changed the name now for Dr. Otis- Otis Brock. Brock Third, correct, which is, which is very appropriate. Um, and, and, and so, because of the fact that the school itself is sitting on part of the race course, you see. So we, we felt we involved the principal, the students, the staff, and they've all helped with the commemoration. Because again, it's important for the kids. I remember the first time I was there, The first time I was actually on that site was 2007 and I went to the school, then it was Bartow. It was after school and I walked to the back of the school and I saw some kids um, playing basketball on the court back there in the school. There were some young African-American guys, I think they were about 13, 14, 15. And I was just trying to get my bearings and I said, wait a minute, we must be right in the middle of the racetrack somewhere. Okay. And my first thought was, do these, do, these, do these kids know where they are? Do they know that this is the slave sale site? And I asked myself, should they know or should they not know? Is it better that they not know or is it better that they know? That's one of those questions that we all have to grapple with. Some people say ignorance is bliss. Maybe if they know, Maybe they'll be, maybe they'll be upset, maybe, but who knows? Maybe if they know they will write a poem. Maybe if they know, they'll play their saxophone in tribute. Maybe if they know, they'll aspire to be the next mayor, right. the next pastor. Maybe if they know, they'll think about how do we reconcile? So that's when we decided, no, we've got, I think we've got to share what we know. And there are people, as I said, in Savannah who, who know. In fact, I have to say this, that, and give 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 um, credence where it's due. One of the people that I believe was instrumental in having the marker that's there in Savannah placed is Monifa Johnson, who's a niece of former mayor Otis Johnson. Because when I started researching it, I found out that she talked to a woman called Tosca Owens, who also many of you know. She's a faculty at um, Savannah State, but she used to work for the city Savannah as a planner. And so at that point, I think um, around 2007 or before, the city of Savannah was trying to do some improvements on the west side. Improvements meaning maybe new roads, expanded sidewalks, things like that. Sure. And Monif- Monifa Johnson, Ms. Monifa Johnson, spoke to Ms. Owens and said, if there are any improvements done in the west side, you all need to remember the Weeping Time site. Tosca says she did not know about the weeping time site, but she also did research, talk with Michael Brown, the city mayor then, who happens to be city um, city manager. Sorry. City manager, right? Who's, yep. who, who's, who's back now, acting manager. And between the between Mr. Brown, Monifa, Tosca, the mayor, and other parts, um, they decided that something needed to be done. They, 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 they contracted with um, um Dr. Martha Kieber and her husband both educators, both professors, they did some write up, try to find out and that's how the marker came about. Right. So I wanna be careful to give them credit. And of course, there are all these people who have been working you know, at the same time. I think for me, I look at it as a groundswell. We're all walking the same landscapes. We're all being impacted by the same landscapes. And therefore we all need to collectively honor these people.
1: And what's the best way to do that? It, it, it's, it's particularly important now because now that there is a greater awareness of the site, uh, we have a controversy in town right now where they, they want to build something on a neighboring site. And it's, it, there's a lot of pushback against that. Uh, it, just for clarity's sake, where the Salvation Army wants to build its center is not the race course. It is not the site. It is a adjacent site. So I want to say that so we don't I don't get 10 million emails from 10 million people, which tends to happen. But from what you would like to do, uh, somewhere on the site, whether it's at the school or somewhere somewhere close to the school or, or wherever, uh, what is the most appropriate thing to do to, to commemorate this, to honor this? And, and what can it do in terms of unifying the public, unifying the community, that kind of
0: thing? Okay, thank you so very much. Thank you so very much. Now, I have to say this. You will probably still get your 10,000 emails. Probably. Because of of what I'm going to say. Um, You are are right that the site that the Salvation Army is considering is not where the racetrack was, per se. But let me clarify this, Adam. Sure. That part that the Salvation Army is looking at is part of the original plan. Okay. Or property. Okay. And that's a fact. Um, I researched at the Georgia Historical Society years ago, and I actually have a plot that shows that the racetrack property came all the way to Augusta Avenue. Okay. Yep. You see, so it was bounded by Augusta Avenue, West Lathrop, and then at the at the, at the, southern end was um, Louisville Road. So the right. property was Louisville Road. West Lathrop on the West, Augusta Avenue on the North and East. And the east right. so, so that property, even though the horses did not run there, let me tell you what happened. There was a pathway. There was a gate on Augusta Avenue and I'll send you the plat that crossed that particular land, which also was called Bartow Homes, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the property in, 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 included all that. So okay. to be clear, to be clear, it was part of the property. At some point, maybe it was sold off right. and, and so on. So right. um, now, now, even that said, that said, and I also want to register this to Salvation Army and, and the City of Savannah Council and everybody and your audience, of course. Even if that portion was parceled off at some point, the adjacency of it, I think, is troubling to have yeah. something like the Salvation Army structures there. Now you see flowers on the site and a cross on the site and a picture on the site. What are people doing? Well, the person's not there. They were not buried there. There's nobody there. There's nothing there. But it's because people recognize that there's trauma in that site. Okay. So that said, that weeping time slave sale site, in my opinion, is best suited for a commemoration, a memorial, a museum something. Now, it's privately held. So to me, I would like to see a dialogue start with the city of Savannah, interested um, nonprofit organizations, the Bradley brothers. The Bradley brothers have been what I call remarkable custodians of this land. It could have already been turned into something else. But what they've been doing, knowingly or unknowingly, is they've been holding this space This is sacred space. Now, this might very well, this property that they hold might very well hold the keys. And I'll say it to great unification in America. Here's why, when there's there's trauma in a a site, that site also holds potential for healing. Imagine a memorial on that site. The memorial is not for African-Americans the memorial for Americans. Many of your audience have been to Vietnam, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. This country was torn apart about the Vietnam War. There was some for, some against it, but that memorial is a healing space. People go and they touch it. They experience something. I've been there. So what I'd like to envision, if I can be bold enough, is a memorial, and or a museum on that space. If it means that the Bradley brothers donate it or it's paid for, however, however it goes down, I believe it needs to be acquired. There is no price to be paid or too big to be paid for the land where September 11 happened. I'll tell you this and you probably know this. There are people who advocated for that site, because it's one of the most expensive real estate in America, to be built back up as new Twin Towers. Right. But you know what? It was overruled. They said, no, let's have a memorial park. People said, well, you know, do you know how many billions of dollars we're losing by right. turning into a memorial park? But you know why? It's because there are no billions of dollars that should trump the, um, the lives of those 3,000 people.
1: Again, you are listening to a conversation with Queasy DeGraft Hansen on the Difference Makers podcast. While he takes a short break, I have a call to action for you. Subscribe to SavannahNow.com. More and more lately, I'm told by podcast listeners and casual newspaper readers hey, I like what you guys are doing over there. How do I support you? The answer is simple subscribe to SavannahNow.com. And if you are already a subscriber, do business with our advertisers. We aren't public radio or a nonprofit journalism outfit. We offer great journalism, and we charge you for the ability to consume it. Go to SavannahNow.com or download our app and see our product for yourself. Then hit the subscribe button to get full access for a pittance. Right now it's a real pittance. It's a dollar for three months. Get in on that, check it out. You still like it from there, you can go from there. I think, actually I think it's $49 for the year even. So, you know, if if you like what you see, you can get in on that deal now and go ahead and secure full access to, to community news for a full year. It's, it's, it's a great deal. Now back to the Difference Makers interview. I want to ask you one more question before I let you go. And it is related um, is we're talking about memorials. Uh, we're talking about history before I hit the record button. We talked a little bit about, um making sure that if you don't have memorials and monuments that that are tributes to enslaved people, then it's it's almost like you're saying that you that you're not wanted, that you're not needed, that you didn't really exist. We have here in town uh, some museums that are going out of their way now as they should, uh, that are expanding their history programs to tell the stories of the enslaved people that worked in those. Yes. And then those things, Owens Thomas House is a is a perfect example. Yes, I know that that is that is somewhat controversial. Uh, and, and I just wonder, from your perspective, uh, should that be controversial? Are they doing it the right way? What could what could be done better or differently?
0: Okay, thank you, thank you. Yes, I know I know it's controversial. Here's what I'd say: I, I say that they're doing it they're doing it the right way uh, from what from what I've seen, and the story needs to be told from both ends. So as you said, the Owens Thomas House, they, 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 they have a building, uh, the, the main house, and then in the back, the, the slave quarters, um, and letting people know that, yes, this was where the enslaved people stayed who took care of the people in, in the main house. I, wa- I want to go to the beginning of your question here. You talked about the importance of remembering and so on. This is my opinion, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. But following from what I said about what Sigmund Freud said about trauma and all that, remembering, to me, means honoring. Again, we honor the September 11th. We honor people at Pearl Harbor. We we honor anything, and it's American to honor. We honor our Confederate generals. We honor—it's American to honor. I have a nephew, and I'm going to digress a little bit, but I have a nephew who— was trained here at Fort Benning, Georgia, and um, he's in the Army. His first position was to the the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. And he sent me pictures and, and video of how daily, I believe, there's a ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I don't know if I need to say any more. Here's why. Though we don't know the names of those privates or generals or whoever lying in those graves, they may, they may not be there, but it's a memorial that says, whether we know your name, whether we saw your dog tags, whether we recovered something from you or not, to all the collective unknown soldiers of the United States of America, we honor you daily. We honor your memory. Whether we know your descendants, whether they know you or not, we honor you. Think about what that means for the country. So let's extrapolate that to the enslaved people. There should be a tomb to the unknown enslaved people. We know some of their names, but the majority we don't know. What if we had the same sort of honor? Because not only did they build the country with labor, as I said, they contributed ingenuity. Butler Island was a rice plantation. There's a professor in California called Judith Carney who's written a book called Black Rice. She went to West Africa and researched the rice growing in West Africa and traces it directly to South Carolina and Georgia rice growing because Europeans did not know how to grow rice. So the Africans brought the technology. There's something called trunks. This is what they allowed water to move through to, from the rivers to the fields. Judith County found trunks in West Africa. So the question is, did the West Africans learn rice growing from plantations in, in Georgia, in South Carolina, or did the South Carolina planters and slaveholders learn from the other way around? So it's not just about labor. The enslaved people brought culture, knowledge, intelligence, technique, even tabby building. So where am I going with this? Now, To remember means to honor, and it transfers to descendants. So I said, we honor Jefferson's descendants to this day, as we should. Now, the opposite is true. To not remember is to dishonor, and that also transfers to descendants. So if on one hand we're saying, well, you know what, we we have to respect the Confederate generals and the the Union generals and the, the former presidents and everything, but forget about the slaves who built the White House, who built the Capitol, who built Wall Street, who built. So it's it's a matter of then erasure. Now, when you dishonor my ancestors, you cannot, in truth, be honoring me. So if you dishonor my ancestors, you're dishonoring me, regardless of what you say. And that's what we have to we have to realize. Uh, it may be conscious. It may be un- unconscious. So now moving on, why is it important to remember? It's not about just honoring and dishonoring. Remembering also allows healing to take place. As I said, we have to all remember that we were not here, but we're still fighting the civil war all over again. What we need to do is say, all right, let's allow healing in all of us because the healing actually needs to take place on both sides. Mm. There are people who are descendants of Joseph Bryan, who sold or who was a broker for the enslaved people. When, when those defendants hear about the weeping time, I'm sure they cringe. They're people who change their last names so that they're not associated with the butlers and the Bryans and the, and the, and the co. That means that there's trauma there also. So it's not just the enslaved people's descendants, but the descendants of those who are slaveholders, slave brokers, slave sellers, slave you know, all of us. Um, and then I think to, 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 to tie it all together, I would say remembering leads to honoring. Honoring leads to healing, but it doesn't stop there. Healing allows us to move forward. That's what's important. The analogy of the, the wound on, 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 on the flesh comes back to mind. We all have scars. But if you squeeze the scar, you hit the scar, you pull the scar, it will not hurt because it does heal and we move on. The scar may be there when we look at it, but there's no pain. So after that, remembering and the honoring and the healing, we then move forward. And that will take me back. I'll take you back to when I first came to America, 1983. Some of my friends, especially Caucasian friends, would explain to me the whole thing about black-white challenges in America. And they say, well, just they just need to move on, okay? These black people just need to move on. Well, the truth is that I think people would like to move on, but it might not be as easy as just moving on. Or we can move on, but some things hold us back. I mentioned to you at some point in this conversation, the young boy or girl whose father and mother may have been in the Twin Towers when it came down. That young boy or young girl cannot move on if New York City does not honor their parents. If the country does not honor their parents, they'll forever have a a knot or a wound in their chest. They're going to ask this question: Why do I need to move on? Why should I? Why should I be? A, a, why should I aspire to be president of the United States? Or why should I aspire to be? Because because sometimes I I just feel like my life is not that worth. It. My dad is not important to you. My mother's not important to you. Why should I be important to you? Now, that is not to say, I'm not saying in this a fatalist way that this is what happens. But this might happen to one or two people out of 100. And one or two people are important. So to me, the way forward is, let us all collectively come to grips with this. Let America come to grips with slavery. Let us honor the enslaved ancestors. Let us heal from it and let us move on collectively together.
1: Well, we gotta leave it right there. Uh, thank you for just a great conversation.
0: And um, I hope people will,
1: will take some time the first week of March to think about think about what happened in Savannah and think about um, how they can, how can they get involved? Uh, is the ocean's website the, the best place to do that?
0: Yes, thank you. I'll give you two places. So the Oceans website, and if if you if you if you write it down, it is Oceans One. So the number one, Oceans oneorg Okay. We have information about how to get involved.
1: Very good. Well, Adam,
0: thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Great conversation. And
0: uh, thank you. Appreciate it.
1: That's all for this episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to Kwesi DeGraft Hansen and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as the Alcival Island Foundation's Elizabeth Debose, Savannah political icon Al Scott, and Georgia Southern Athletic Director Jared Benko. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening.